Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union at 5.2%. 5% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your two ministers of minutia. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. That's very good. That's a good one. I'm glad you, you. You were running you, out of gas last time. We I'm glad you, you More in the tank, baby. Got my second win. Um, and Jordan, today we are talking about one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. The movie that really cemented my love of Tommy Lee Jones, if nothing else. Um, that's right. We are talking about Men in Black. The Tommy Lee Jones starring, Will Smith co-starring. Barry Sonnenfeld directed, weird little movie with all the great gadgets, awesome practical effect aliens, and of course, my boy Vinny D'Onofrio's amazing 10,000 chef's kiffs uh, turn as the giant cockroach stuffed in a skin suit, Edgar. Um, I almost said that was too real for me, but that's that's not the right phrase there. It was too too unreal for me, too terrifying for me, too nightmarish for me. It is so good. I can't wait to dive into it. Um, I almost airbrushed Will Smith out of that entire description, and then I threw him a bone. This movie came out when I was 10, and I saw it in the theaters, and therefore that created the perfect conditions for me to think that it was the coolest thing that had ever happened or ever would, and I held on to that belief firmly. I rewatched it not long ago, and despite the sequels, which we will not be talking about, and despite the long, slow, excruciatingly public decline of Will Smith, which we will also not be talking about, the first one has really, really held up, and I just still love it so much. And it's one of those few movies that could just zap me back to being a kid again, you know, which is like just the best feeling in the world. It's crazy to turn 25 years old this month. It doesn't really, it, I mean, it does not seem. Except for this stuff with Edgar at the end, all those effects are still top notch. Uh, you know, it's weird. I actually pretty much totally missed this movie as a kid. Um, Interesting. I kind of only had room in my heart for one Will Smith alien related <laughs> movie. 
And since Independence Day was released the year before, that had kind of gotten to me first. Kind of like how The Who got to me first before Led before Zeppelin. Zeppelin. Yeah. Independence Day got to me first, so my allegiance was with that. <laughs> and so as a result, this was kind of a big blind spot for me. I think I've seen like pieces of it at, you know, different kids' parties and stuff growing up. But I, yeah, this is really something that was new to me. Independence Day is like the jock version of like, this is like the AV yeah. club kid like this is the indoor kid version of an alien movie. It's so that makes a lot of sense. It's like Douglas Adams versus like <laughs> uh, I don't know Michael James Bay? Patterson. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, but yeah, I, Roland, I was making it was grasping for literary comparison there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I love Independence Day as well, obviously, um, but this one is just so it feels so it feels so much more human too. All of this stuff, like we don't really we're not going to cover the plot, but like. Tommy Lee Jones' character's like whole little melancholy arc and the way that it ends with ah, oh, with the girlfriend. So no, the way that it ends with him like it has like the button where he's like, you know, he neutralizes his old partner who's getting too old at the beginning, and then at the end, Will Smith does that to him so that he can retire. It's so like there's a real heart to old this movie. Yeller. <laughs> yeah, there's a real heart to this movie that I think is sorely missing from um, you know, uh Will Smith punching aliens in the face and saying welcome to earth in independence day <laughs> but you're also a ginormous alien buff yeah i um you know i was gonna actually debate that but i actually i was at area 51 the day of the <laughs> alleged storming i was covering it for work but i also insisted on covering it for work so yeah, yeah. i guess given that one fact alone i probably can't can't deny that no um it's interesting to me that uh according to a 2012 survey more than a third of americans believe that aliens have visited earth i wanted to ask you how you feel about that honestly uh, i would say if they have it's been in like prehistory um no mm. oh, yeah and they like nudged they maybe did something to cavemen or just at a different point in our evolution. Cause I, I think any alien race with the capacity for like, you know, what are they, whatever they say, like, inner, like it, to get across the distances, they would have to scan our society and be like, what the, nope. f nothing there. <laughs> Turn it around right back the way you came there. Gleber glops. Um, well, what's that analogy where if the history of this planet were condensed into a year where we're at right now, would be like I, I something like 30 seconds before midnight on new year's eve or something <laughs> i yeah, haven't heard I mean, that just, but so that the scans. amount of time you know yeah. so we think like why haven't the aliens been here yet there really hasn't been a hell of a lot of time for that to have occurred in you know in the grand scheme of things well folks from the quote-unquote real figures that inspired this film to the awkward contortions that vincent d'onofrio put himself through in the name of his art to which scene Will Smith ripped a disgusting fart in while, while shooting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to go with that one. Here's everything you didn't know about Men in Black. So the real Men in Black. This goes back to 50s. Not Johnny Cash. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine Johnny Cash showing up to your house after an alien incident? <laughs> Hello. I'm Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> Just neutralizes you and walks away. Um, I mean, hurt neutralizes me enough. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm just going to play you the video to hurt and leave. And you'll, and you'll never feel again. <laughs> yeah. um, so on June 24th, 1947, a private pilot by the name of Kenneth Arnold 
claimed that he saw a string of nine shiny, unidentified flying objects flying past Mount Rainier in Washington State at speeds that Arnold estimated must have been at a minimum of 1,200 miles an hour. This report made the national news and may have been ground zero for the phrase flying saucer in the popular consciousness based on the way that he described them. Is that Would you describe that as broadly accurate? Yeah, 1947 was a big year for flying saucer sightings, which we could talk more about in a minute. But yeah, there were uh, a whole... A whole spate of these sightings, which, mm-hmm. you know, in so, as much as I, as much as I, I want to believe, a la Fox <laughs> Mulder, the fact that it all sort of started happening at once in the aftermath of World War II, mm-hmm. when we had access to a lot of German scientists who were basically tasked with building all sorts of insane flying yeah. machines for the Nazis, it does kind of lend a lot of credence to the idea that these were you know, secret government programs. Yeah. Uh, and they were just developing these new, uh, these new crafts uh, and they didn't want people to know about it. Yeah. But anyway. Um, so after this story is publicized, Arnold is contacted by a guy named Raymond Palmer, who's editor of the um, sci-fi fringe culture magazine, Amazing Stories, who told him the story of two harbor patrolmen in Tacoma, Washington, supposedly in possession of fragments of a flying saucer. Palmer asked Arnold to check it out wired him 200 bucks, and sent him on his merry way. I think he was L. Ron Hubbard's editor for a while. I think L. Yeah. Ron used to write for Amazing Stories back when he was cranking out, you know, I think 20,000 words a I day or whatever it was. Everybody did. Um, Isaac Asimov, I think. Yep, Isaac Asimov, Ursula K. Le Guin, another big one. Okay, so... According to History.com, on June 27th, 1947, so just a few days after Arnold's sighting, a guy named Harold Dahl was gathering logs on the Puget Sound near the eastern shore of Washington's Maury Island when he saw six donut-shaped objects hovering about a half mile in the air. Before long, one of them fell nearly 1,500 feet, followed by raining metallic debris, some of which hit Dahl's son Charles on his arm, as well as the family dog who died. Uh, Dahl was able to take some pictures and took them to his supervisor, a guy named Fred Chrisman, who subsequently showed up on the scene, took a look around at things. And Dahl claims that he was visited by a man in a black suit the next day, where at a local diner, the man was able to basically recount the incident to him in extraordinarily in extraordinary detail. And uh, he said, what I have said, he allegedly said, what I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe, he said, uh, according to a guy named Gray Barker, who wrote a book in 1956 called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which a little on the nose there, Gray. Uh, Dahl was told not to speak of the incident and warned that if he did, bad things would happen. So Arnold recruits a, a guy named Captain E.J. Smith of United Airlines. Is that seriously his name? Because Captain E.J. Smith was the captain of the Titanic. I, when I saw that you wrote that, I double, triple checked it. That's what's written. So, wow. Air, Air Captain Smith, not Sea Captain Smith, um, along with a guy named Lieutenant Frank Brown of military intelligence and a Captain William L. Davidson go and conduct interviews in the area and collect evidence. And then they mysteriously die. A few days later, on August 1st, when the B-25 that they were piloting crashes outside of Kelso, Washington, on their way back to California. I guess that's not mysterious, but I'm trying to, you know, zhuzh the story up a little. So now the FBI is really understandably interested, and they put the screws to Dahl and Chrisman, concluding that this whole story was a hoax, 
and that the pair themselves contacted a bunch of magazines and were basically attempting to play these magazines against each other to get the best price they could for the story. So, bit of a sad trombone there. A few years later, one of the most famous Men in Black accounts comes from a guy, uh, Albert K. Bender, who created in 1952 the International Flying Saucer Bureau. He said he was subsequently visited by three men in dark suits who threatened him with imprisonment if he continued his work. This account is featured in the aforementioned They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, <laughs> the Gray Barker book, who mentioned it frequently in his magazine, The Saucerian, <laughs> which sounds like a culinary term. <laughs> He's the guy who comes to your table with a bunch of sauces and was like, I believe this would pair nicely with the chicken, or the dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets. Here's where it gets into taxonomy. Distinctions are made in UFO circles between men in black lowercase and men in black capitalized. The former are supposedly human government agents, FBI, CIA, whatever, while the latter, at least as depicted by UFOologist John A. Keel, author of the famous book uh, turned into film, The Mothman Prophecies, as demonic supernaturals who behave in distinctly non-human ways. Meanwhile, in an article from 1998, a guy named John C. Sherwood claimed that in the late 60s, when he was 18, he cooperated with Gray Barker and urged him to develop a hoax, which Barker subsequently published about what Barker called black men, three mysterious UFO inhabitants who silenced Sherwood's uh, pen name, Dr. Richard H. Pratt. So you've got all these seeds of this kind of evolving um, notion of these silencer fixer characters that's moving through all of these fringe circles. And, um, you know, this stuff was really popular at the time. They did get circulated. People did read them. And so that's how you start seeing it trickle into other areas of pop culture, including Blue Oyster Cult, who I love. Their 1976 song, ETI, Extraterrestrial Intelligence. British punk band The Stranglers have a 1979 song called Men in Black, which is then followed two years later by a concept album called The Gospel According to the Men in Black. Um, and then on the big screen, uh, there's a 1979 film called The Alien Encounters by James T. Flocker that features the Men in Black. And then 1984's The Brother from Another Planet features uh, two Men in Black who try to capture the alien hero. They also pop up in X-Files uh, interchangeably as actual threats and comic relief. And there's a famous episode where one is played by former governor Jesse the Body Ventura and another by <laughs> Alex Trebek. God bless Alex Trebek. We truly didn't deserve him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to riff on this. Riff, so, baby, riff. So this is one of the few times that I actually riff on this show. Um, one of the few flying saucer incidents that we haven't spoken about so far is the Roswell incident. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like, you know, the granddaddy of all these stories. So I, I just want to touch a little bit on that because it's something that I found really interesting. I said earlier, I went to Area 51 for the alleged storming, you know, that whole Facebook event thing that went viral in 2019. And this story kind of turned into a whole cultural history of Area 51, like when it became public knowledge that this place existed, what we knew about it, what's officially been released about it. And as with most things in regard to the government and aliens and conspiracy theories, the story spiraled into like a 20,000 word piece. Sure did. It maybe is the longest thing that people com has ever published um it's pretty insane uh check it out if you're so inclined but i spoke to a really fascinating investigative reporter named annie jacobson and she researches all sorts of formerly top secret government programs stuff like 
you know, Project Paperclip, MK Ultra, mm-hmm. government mind control stuff. Uh, and she wrote a book called Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base. And I mean, I read the book several times and it's incredible. You know, if you're into this kind of stuff, definitely check it out. And speaking to her, she got into a little more detail with me. Her theory is basically that the famous flying saucer crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947 was actually from Russia. After the Second World War, the United States and the Russians kind of divided up the former Nazi scientists who were metaphorically and quite possibly literally light years ahead of the American aviation technology. And so they had all sorts of crazy stuff that they're working on. If you look at some unproduced, possibly unbuilt, if you believe official stories, uh, they look like flying saucers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they look like the uh, stealth bombers like 40 years early, the kind of stuff they're working on. So her story is that Joseph Stalin, the Russian dictator, built this flying saucer and had it flown over to the United States with Uh, what she called grotesque child-sized aviators that were basically the result of human experimentation Mm. uh, to cause mass hysteria in the United States because a decade earlier, uh, Orson Welles had done his famous War of the Worlds radio broadcast Mm -hmm. where he told H.G. Wells' sci-fi story about an alien invasion on the radio, but he did it as if it were a live news broadcast and people tuning in, you know, after the opening credits thought that they were real alien invasions and it created this, you know, mass hysteria for a day or so in the United States. Stalin wanted to basically do that on a mass scale and flew this flying saucer. Allegedly, as as the story goes, had these um, child-sized, grotesque (laughs) child-sized aviators, I'm just going to keep leaning on that phrase, uh, fly this craft into uh, in the United States, and it's unclear if it was meant to just kind of crash anywhere or or if they were supposed to fly over. I believe it was supposed to fly over like urban centers and something went wrong and it crashed in the middle of New Mexico in this small town. And supposedly, according to Andy Jacobson, the person who wrote this book, sources, there were like Russian language Cyrillic symbols found in, inside the craft. It's always the Russians. Like Uh, I'm reading now from her book. These grotesque child-sized aviators were aged around 10, each under five feet tall with large heads and abnormally shaped oversized eyes. They were neither aliens nor consenting airmen, but human guinea pigs, she claims. Um, Gross. Tragic. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) onto a lighter subject, that of comic books. The movie Men in Black has its roots in a three-issue 1990 run of comics created and written by Lowell Cunningham and illustrated by Sandy Carruthers. Published by Aerosol Comics, who were originally a manufacturer of foam insulation, if you can believe that. Uh, Cunningham was working as a security guard when the series finished. He has since continued working in the sci-fi vein, while Carruthers was a college professor for a decade. Aerosol was sold to another smaller comic company called Malibu, who were in turn sold to Marvel, which is, I believe, why we have 17 sequels to that, because the rights would have reverted to Disney. I could be wrong about that. Anyway, so this really came from extremely humble origins. I mean, nobody read this thing when it came out. This company was tiny. But somehow, husband and wife producers Walter F. Parks and Laurie McDonald did, and they optioned the rights in 1992, which is just 
a crazy turnaround. Parks co-wrote War Games in uh, 1983, which is a big claim to fame, picked up a Best Original Screenplay Oscar nod. And then he co-produced several films with uh, Lawrence Lasker, including Awakenings. Then he was named president of Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment in 1994. And that same year went on to found DreamWorks. So this guy was a huge heavy hitter in Hollywood and uh, produced a bunch of stuff with... uh, his wife, Laurie McDonald, and their track record is bananas. They oversaw development of three consecutive Best Oscar winners, American Beauty, Gladiator, and A Beautiful Mind, along with Almost Famous, Anchorman, and f***ing Saving Private Ryan. I For, for people Lord. whose names I had never read before researching this, they are responsible for an enormous swath of 90s pop culture. Um, Ed Solomon, who is the guy who wrote the screenplay to this, was still in college and got a job as a staff writer for your beloved Laverne and Shirley, uh, making him at the time the youngest member of the Writers Guild of America. He wrote the first Bill and Ted. He had um, co-writes on the next ones. He co-wrote the absolute screaming piece of Super Mario Brothers movie starring friend of the pod Bob Hoskins. And at one point he was married to John Cleese's daughter. Wow, you got Monty Python and Laverne and Shirley in there. I feel like I need to meet yeah, this track guy. him down. And aliens, yeah, and aliens. It's a real trifecta. Solomon did not have fun making this movie. <laughs> Sorry to, for that. <laughs> he told Inverse he was fired four times and then hired five times, calling the making of the film very stressful for me and alluding to multiple, multiple, multiple drafts of the script. Parks and McDonald wanted Barry Sonnenfeld to direct based on the two Adams families that he did, which he thought this, they thought his kind of, you know, weirdo, but still comedic sensibility would uh, work well for this. But he was attached to Get Shorty in 1995. So instead they approached a guy named Les Mayfield, uh, who is best known for the Miracle on 34th Street remake. Oh, with Mara yep. Wilson. And oh, Richard yeah. Attenborough. Oh, that's right. I guess I remember it more fondly than it went down at the time because I guess producers backed off using Les Mayfield because the reviews for his Miracle on 34th Street remake were really bad. As they are wont to do. So after he fell through, John Landis uh, and Quentin Tarantino were asked to direct, which declined. Can you imagine Quentin Tarantino doing this and there's like all this pop culture riffing rat-a-tat dialogue while they're driving around? Well, and like how many gallons of... Fake blood. Alien yeah. blood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it bounced back to Sonnefield. Landis's note was, one of his notes was apparently that the characters' black suits were too close to the Blues Brothers, which I think is funny. <laughs> Just like a weird reason to turn down a movie is like, uh, the wardrobe is too similar. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he would have done a good job on that too. I mean, yep. considering a werewolf in London and all the kind of genre blending that he did for that um he reportedly deeply regrets passing on this movie um i had no idea until researching this episode that barry sonnenfeld got his start as the coen brothers dp doing raising arizona and miller's crossing and taking it back to laverne and shirley he worked with penny marshall on big and rob reiner and when harry met sally and misery starring the recently departed james con oh yeah big ups to james con so one of the early drafts of the script kind of ping-ponged around the country from Washington, D.C. to Kansas, but Sonnenfeld made the, I think, crucial genius tweak to just narrow the scope to, with the exception of the farmer scene to New York City, making 
the French connection with aliens, which is his quote, which rules. And he, you know, he picked a bunch of places in the city's architecture that look weirdly alien, like the ventilation structure for the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which is where the MIB headquarters are. And now, Jordan, talk to us about casting. Yes. Sonnefeld in the oral history with Inverse uh, said that he was sent two copies of the script because he and his wife read them together, which I find adorable. And he said that we finished at the same time and I turned to her and said, Tommy Lee Jones. And she turned to me and said, Will Smith. So according to him, as soon as they put down the script, they knew exactly who they wanted to star. But the studio really wanted Clint Eastwood for the Tommy Lee Jones character, which I can kind of see. Yeah. But ironically, the choice of Tommy Lee Jones almost backfired on him because I guess Tommy had director approval. So they basically had to like ask Tommy if it was okay for the director who wanted him to direct this movie, which kind of sets the tone for Tommy Lee Jones' involvement in this (laughs) movie. Sure does. Yeah. Um, Jones sort of begrudgingly accepted the script uh, after assurances from Steven Spielberg that it would be better. Because according to Jones, this first draft stank. I'm getting a lot of Gene Hackman energy here. Oh, he's so cranky. Yeah. I love it. But I guess for the uh, the younger agent, Agent J, they instead of Will Smith, they were approaching sort of more zeitgeisty actors of the time, like Batman Forever's Chris O'Donnell and Friends David Schwimmer. I can't imagine I, how truly shitty that would be, would have been. I can't. Yeah, that's so bizarre. Um, but Sonnenfeld's wife was a big Fresh Prince fan. And uh, it's important to remember that Independence Day and Bad Boys hadn't happened yet. So Will Smith was really just kind of a, a TV star at that point. I think the big one he had just done was Bad Boys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Spielberg even forced Sonnenfeld to sit down with Chris O'Donnell to discuss the role. So they went out to dinner, and he was so set on having Will Smith in this movie that he basically sabotaged the dinner. He told, I love it. He told Chris O'Donnell, you know, I'm not a very good director, and I don't think this script is very good. So <laughs> if you've got other options, you should probably really take them. Which, how could Chris O'Donnell not interpret that so, as a we don't want such, you go away such ham-handed reverse psychology i, I mean is it reverse it. psychology or is it just a way of really telegraphing like look we don't want you move on i'm here under duress uh yeah, i can't tell I which it is but uh anyway chris <laughs> got the message and moved on and uh i guess barry sonnefeld went back to spielberg and the very next day said oh yeah he's he's not interested sorry yes we've we got to go with will smith and as part of his push to get will smith he arranged for a helicopter to take smith from a wedding in philadelphia to east hampton new york where spielberg was summering yeah. uh, and i guess thankfully spielberg and smith hit it off Smithberg. I've read various things about Will Smith's casting. Supposedly, he thought he was being pranked the first time Steven Spielberg talked to him on the phone about the role, and he almost turned it down, which is adorable. And he also almost turned it down because he'd just done Independence Day, which mm-hmm. famously, as I mentioned, is also about aliens. And he, I guess, didn't want to become the guy. The alien guy? Aliens. <laughs> yeah. It's, why am I always the alien guy? <laughs> Um, and it came out and was a huge hit right before Men in Black wrapped. His wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, <laughs> of, yeah. of, 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 <laughs> let's of, not do that. Let's nope, not, we're not go gonna there. Do that. We're not going to do that. She was the one who convinced Will to take the part in Men in Black. Um, I have this. Uh, that just reminds me of one of my favorite jazz anecdotes, which is when um, Herbie Hancock talks about this in this um, 
It's called Miles Electric, A Different Kind of Blue. It's this beautiful, beautifully shot version of his uh, performance at um, Isle of Wight. And they interview all the band members. And uh, Herbie Hancock says the first time he got the call to be in Miles Davis's band, he thought someone was f***ing with him. Because they all used to imitate Miles Davis behind his back. Just doing like the whisper, like, Herbie. And so when he like picked up the phone, he's like, he hears like, Herbie, I got a gig for you. And he's like, get the f*** out of here. You know, whoever this is, like, quit trolling me and hangs up the phone. And yeah, man, hanging up on Miles, making Miles call you back was a, a quick way to... um piss him off <laughs> a similar thing happened to the producer glenn johns when uh paul mccartney called to ask yeah. him to produce the get back sessions he's like quit taking the piss well yeah he was tight with mick jagger because he produced a bunch of rolling stone sessions and he thought it was mick just calling to imitate him and he told him to go to hell and hung up on him that's hilarious i feel like there's there's a list school that needs to be written of people hanging up on their big break because they think they're being <laughs> pranked because there, there's a long list of that yeah for sure Sonnefeld, talking about Will Smith, had a really interesting comparison. Uh, he compared him to John Travolta. Uh, he hmm. said they both have that movie star thing going on. I hmm. think that's an interesting comparison. Yeah. I will. I'm not gonna, just going to leave will, that one there. We'll let that hang there, yeah. <laughs> Imagine if it was Will Smith and John Travolta in this. Can you do Ugh. John Travolta as uh, as Oh, jeez, Will, we got to get rid of these aliens. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, much like this episode, the tone of this movie <laughs> was something that they really struggled to get down. And it seems like Tommy Lee Jones... God love him, was really... He didn't understand that when you're doing a buddy comedy, you can't have two comedians. You gotta have the straight person and the funny mm -hmm. person. And uh, he thought that Barry Sonnenfeld was trying to make him not funny. And he was very not happy about that. And Barry Sonnenfeld remembered Tommy Lee Jones as being, quote, very intimidating as a result. 
And he's quoted as saying, Tommy just hadn't been in comedies and just didn't know that you just need to play the same reality as you do in dramas. Play I would straight. get calls from his agent at the time saying, you only want Will Smith to be funny. You don't want Tommy to be funny, which is <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, I just love the idea that Jones, who's just this soulful Texan hard ass, just went into like play to the cheap seats and do like broad comedy. <laughs> it's so good. I um, I just want to shoehorn this in there. This is the moment when I want to bring up the fact that Tommy Lee Jones was, I guess, college roommates with Al Gore at Harvard. <laughs> you know Cute. That? No, yeah, I, I exactly. well, maybe it was kicking around in my my skull somewhere. Oh. But yeah, Tommy Lee Jones's stony countenance is pretty legendary. There's the famous anecdote about him and Jim Carrey on the set of Batman Forever. I guess Jim Carrey was sort of picking up on kind of the frostiness from Tommy Lee Jones on the <laughs> set and approached him off the set at a restaurant and asked him, you know, what's up? What's, what's, what's the problem? And Tommy Lee Jones responded by saying, I can no longer sanction your buffoonery. One of the all-time put-downs. Um yeah, rolling on, production designer Bo Welch referred to Jones as kind of a pain in the ass. While mm. Solomon said, it was my experience that if he knew it was a comedy, he certainly didn't think it was funny. And he let me know on quite a few occasions. Sometimes, that is funny, though. Yeah, it's like when you it's like when you put a hat on a cat. Yes. How it's just like they they're they're not. A, this is not funny to, to me. This is like, <laughs> you know, and, and hence it makes it even funnier. Um. Yeah, he said, uh, sometimes I'd write a whole paragraph and I would just see him exit out with his pen and then just do it in a look during the scene, which is pretty badass. Honestly. I was going to yeah. say, yeah, to be able to do a whole graph and a look, that's called good acting. Yeah, the guy uh, who plays Mikey in the opening scene is an actor named Sergio Calderon. And uh, he said of Tommy, he is a little bit difficult. <laughs> But I do like how easygoing Tommy was with the goo in the movie, being <laughs> yeah. covered with the goo and the slime. Apparently that was fine with him, whereas with Will Smith, not so much. He really hated that. Um, stunt coordinator Brian Smurs. No vowels in that name. I, I hope I said that right. Uh, my first meeting with him, I said uh, with Tommy, I said, hey, hello, and put my hand out to shake his hand. He didn't even put his hand out. He just said, my double's cliff happy. Use him and we'll get along fine. <laughs> and then he turns around and walks away. And that guy was, uh, um, his first credit was Animal House, which is another Landis appearance. Ding! Um, I love this. It's very pure to me. Tommy's favorite aliens on the set were the worm guys who were in the break room just shooting the shit about coffee. And he would just take pictures of them to show his son. Um, we'll talk about Rick Baker in a second, who is what, just one of the all-time practical effects guys. Just truly an artist. And uh, Sonnenfeld recalled that Baker told him, you always want to work with puppeteers because puppeteers are SAG guys and therefore they are usually able to ad lib and kind of banter with actors in real time while they're working, which leads to a much more organic relationship than a bored 22-year-old PA holding a tennis ball on a stick, which is the way they do everything <laughs> these days. Um, and so he would t he talks about the, uh, you know, the line where he's like, oh, that's not decaf, is it? And uh, that was an ad lib. And uh and then the puppeteer says, Viennese cinnamon. <laughs> I love that scene. It's so, just the tone of this movie that they immediately hit where they're just like, yep, aliens are just hanging out in the break room. And, you know, they they just they have this easygoing relationship. It's so good. It um, kind of in a weird way reminds me of Roger Rabbit where the cartoons are just like, you know. Yeah, just fully integrated. Yeah, yep. exactly. 
So good. Um, but, you know, despite all that, Tommy did not quibble with the results. Sonnenfeld has a sweet anecdote that uh, when he was doing the press for this and someone would ask, like, oh, you know, you're funny. Like, how did you get that? And Joan said, the secret to being funny is to stand next to Will Smith and do whatever Barry Sonnenfeld tells you to do. <laughs> Which <laughs> may have been sarcastic. May have been sarcastic. Oh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> fair. Um, not too much about Will Smith on the set uh, that I was able to turn up. Um, art director Thomas Duffield just said, Will was always great. I never saw him even get mad. And he gave everybody a bottle of Dom Perignon at the end. Um, and, but. Yeah. <laughs> maybe as a mayor His GI Koopa. track was a different story. <laughs> uh, Sonnenfeld said, Will has really nasty farts. There's a scene where he and Tommy Lee are driving through the Midtown Tunnel. Uh, he's playing Elvis on the radio. No, son, Elvis is not dead. He just went home. Uh, and the car turns upside down. They're driving on the ceiling. He says, so we had a rig to put Will and Tommy into the car body. And then we had to seal that and turn the rig upside down on a green screen stage. By the time you'd seal it, turn it upside down, make sure it was safe. It was about 10 minutes of work. We finally got it upside down. We're ready to shoot. And then we hear Will say, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry, Tommy. <laughs> Guys, get out of here. Get us out. And we panicked and started to turn it around. And you hear Tommy say, no, Will, it's okay. And Will was like, no, it's not. Get us out. <laughs> He'd farted so bad in this enclosed space. Tommy is a manly man, so he played it cool. But man, as soon as we opened it up, Tommy was out of there. <laughs> and he said, I mean, for all of his disgruntledness he's a pro. with the material, yeah, the goo being locked yep. in. Yeah. As soon as the camera starts rolling, TLJ is there for results, baby. Um, Tommy Jones. It's so much. I kind of like called him just Tommy Jones. Uh, <laughs> Sonnenfeld told Insider, uh, I think this year, that the first time they shot the two of them in a scene together was the pawn shop scene with uh, Tony Shaloub. Um, oh, yeah. and uh, Smith ad-libs the last line where he goes, yeah, I'm going to come back about those Rolexes. And like uh, that was the light bulb moment when Sonnenfeld was like, yeah. We did the right thing. These guys have good chemistry together. This is really going to work. Uh, Smith also came up with the classic, I make this look good scene during rehearsals. Are you Agent K or are you Agent J in our in our dynamic? I don't think either of us are. Yeah. Yeah. We're not cool enough to be Will Smith and we're not angry oh, well, I'm enough. Probably, well, you're angry I'm, enough to be I'm K. angry enough, but you so know. So you're I'm basically also... saying I'm not cool enough to be Will Smith, <laughs> which I'll you're take not. as a badge of honor. <laughs> um. You know, I do not want to feed into the narrative about difficult women in Hollywood, but uh, good luck finding anyone who has anything nice to say about Linda Fiorentino. Uh, she went around telling people that she won the role of deputy medical examiner, Laurel Weaver, in a game of poker with Sonnenfeld, and he flatly denied this, saying, that's Linda's legend. Um, Why would you said, brag about that? Yeah, I didn't I didn't yeah. earn this role I wanted in a poker. I mean, so in a way, it almost works against her. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he just said that, yeah, we played poker together at one point and or she was sat down at a table where i was already playing poker and i that's where i thought of her um the inverse oral history does not even mention her at all oh. and there has been a persistent rumor that jones would only return for the film's sequel if she didn't which is she has uh obviously denied yeah a lot of people have said not nice things about her kevin smith who worked with her on dogma did not mince words about her telling tv guide in 2000 Linda created crisis and trauma and anguish. She created drama while we were making a comedy. She was ticked off that there were other people in the movie who were more famous than she was. Um, yeah. Damn. Uh, yeah. Scorched earth, that. Her career uh, has certainly suffered, but 
there's an interesting note about her offstage life. In 2009, <laughs> she was involved in a real-life actual FBI case involving her boyfriend at the time, FBI agent Mark T. Rossini, and her ex, who is a very famous private eye named Anthony Pelicano. Big wiretapper PI in L.A. And Linda, I guess, was feeding confidential FBI documents to her ex-boyfriend, this wiretapper guy, and she got caught. <laughs> So she said she wanted these FBI documents because she was working on a movie and needed, you know, be helpful for her research. This was not true. She just wanted to help her ex-boyfriend, the wiretapper. Uh, she was actually put on probation and fined over this. Yeah, I love the fact that she caused the decline of an FBI agent <laughs> to protect an ex. Uh, makes me like her more. Now we arrive at a little section I like to call Vincent f***ing D'Onofrio baby yes um the real star of the film obviously uh his absolute bad turn i mean talk about committing to the bit he is obviously a giant cockroach stuffed inside of a skin suit um who among us <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> john tuturo and bruce campbell were both offered the role i could see tuturo yeah uh, i can't really so. see campbell would have been no. hamming it too yeah. much uh, Roger Ebert compared Vincent D'Onofrio's performance, or the character at least, to Orson Welles in a suit of armor, <laughs> which I love. Um, 2019, Vulture did an entire oral history of just the sugar in water scene, uh, which is just so perfect. Edgar, your skin is hanging off your face. Uh, I, that seems so good. Anyway, so they talked to Sonnenfeld. They talked to Vincent D'Onofrio for it. And Sonnenfeld says, D'Onofrio's name came up early with the casting director, and I thought he was great. And then he segues into an amazing Stanley Kubrick story um, because uh, he had directed Vincent in Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Kubrick apparently made Vincent come to London and drive out to his, like, baronial estate once a week for months and just, like, force feed him like a pate goose. <laughs> Uh, he would look at he would look at Vincent and say, "You need to weigh more. Come back in a week." Finally, Vincent said, "Okay, now can I ask you some character questions?" And Kubrick said, "That's your job, not mine." <laughs> so Vinny meets up with uh, makeup artist Rick Baker, uh, at, at the aforementioned uh, one genius. of the geniuses of, of practicals, and uh, started getting a concept for the character. Sonnenfeld's only direction to him was always be frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> which does not get much more than Cooper gave him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Baker just put out a book recently. This is enormous coffee table book that is, I haven't shelled out for it. I probably will after writing this. It is incredible. I mean, the man was like Michelangelo with rubbers and goo. <laughs> he, but he has this insane line about Vincent D'Onofrio, which edges into Buffalo Bill territory. <laughs> He says, after losing all of that, after gaining all the weight for, for Full Metal Jacket and then losing it, quote, Vincent's skin never came back as tight. Get closer had, to the mic. Yeah. He had this incredibly loose skin. It was great. <laughs> uh, Baker oh, did apparently did not enjoy working on, um, or at least did not enjoy the aspect of this where he was working with both Spielberg and Sonnenfeld because Spielberg was a producer. Uh, he had to get all his designs approved by both of them, and it was a pain in the ass. They would just write back with 
like, oh, can you put this guy's head on this this guy's torso? And he was like, no, I can't. These were designed to be like interlocking pieces of like elaborately crafted rubber. You can't just play like Lego heads with them. But he had a relationship with Vinny. They had worked together on Tim Burton's Ed Wood, uh, which might have snuck up as my favorite Tim Burton movie, non-Nightmare Before Christmas category. Uh, oh, he's and Orson Vi- Welles, right? Yeah, he plays plays Orson Welles in that, and he's and, du- his voice is dubbed though, right, by the guy who did uh, the brain from Picky and the Brain, Maurice Lamarche. Yeah, yes. Um, Rick Baker's move for this was trying to do these old school Lon Chaney Junior kind of effects, like or Lon Chaney Senior, uh, famously for Phantom of the Opera. Lon, Ch- I mean, Lon for everything. Lon Chaney Junior is uh, one of the early masters of weird practical effects and makeup stuff. Really groundbreaking work in stuff like Phantom of the Opera and uh, London After Midnight, I think is the other one. Um, but he would do sh- like spirit gum or paste uh, pieces of fish skin, I believe is what he used for Phantom of the Opera to distort his facial features and then wear these like sort of these appliances all day for these shoots. Anyway, Rick Baker said to uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, like, that's what I want to do for this. I'd like to pull your eyelid and glue it down, and it's going to be pulled down for the whole day. Is that all right? And so they tested it, and Vincent goes, can you pull it down further? (laughs) (laughs) He said, Vincent was up for anything I wanted to do to him as long as it made the character more interesting. Subsequently, that makeup took six hours a day to apply. Sonnenfeld said Rick did an amazing job of making various levels of deconstruction, which is something I forgot. I went back and was looking at this. He gets so gross as the skin suit starts to fall apart. And that they thought that through because the collagen from the skin would start to dry out. And, uh, you know, by the end, one of his teeth is just like falling out. Um, so there's like three or four versions of this makeup that Rick did for the film. And uh, he said that he thinks Peter Jackson has one of the, the farmer overalls and shirt, which is i don't know just funny to me and now we arrive at the voice which is another this is just such a class i love this this little image that vincent d'onofrio sketches nobody except for rick saw the actual character or heard the character's voice until the first day of shooting we went to the set and did a take and he cleared the set after that (laughs) he, he said so uh is this what you're gonna do that's the voice and Vincent D'Onofrio goes, yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> and Perry Sonnenfeld, he says, he said something like, it's going to be great or it's going to be a complete and utter failure. Can, you, can um, you demonstrate? I'm trying to think of some of the the lines that he says. Well, the, I mean, the sugar water one. Uh, I had a cat. I, had a, I was a little cat that I brought with me. A very, a very small cat. <laughs> that's the one I remember. Um I'm consistently uh, amazed with your ability to do these impressions on demand. Ah, cut. Uh, so those voices, Vincent D'Onofrio, George C. Scott, and John Houston's, which is probably most famous on, uh, as heard in Chinatown. And we keep coming back to Chinatown in this podcast. Oh, yeah. George C. Scott had this particular raspy voice. He had it his whole career, even when he was younger. Got more and more pronounced and scratchy as he got older, said Vincent. He had this cadence he spoke with, which was kind of staccato. He'd put very weird pauses in and then fly out with a bit of dialogue. Sort of the Nick Cage approach, or or Chris Walken. <laughs> I was also really interested in Houston's pronunciation of things. It was pedestrian in an elegant way. He sounds out every letter. But I didn't want it to be that slow, so I combined George C. Scott's raspiness and cadence with John Houston's enunciation. So there you go. 
Vincent D'Onofrio went on to use this voice in the Men in Black cartoon series from 1997 to 2001. He went on to voice all of the bugs in that show. So even though his character may have died, spoiler alerts, the voice lives on. <laughs> Yeah, the John, the uh, George C. Scott thing you can really hear because he just kind of like locks his jaw. Yeah, whenever he he speaks. I mean, you, you, the Patton performance he gives, or like Doctor Strangelove, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, is <laughs> something that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can definitely really hear that. So to get sort of the the physical movement of this character down, Vincent D'Onofrio watched hours upon hours of bug documentaries. Which is just (laughs) the thought of him like aviator style just in a private home cinema. I I imagine him as the the guy he plays in Full Metal Jacket, just like sitting on a toilet, like thousand yard staring at a bunch of bug documentaries. (laughs) And I guess he also watched Peter Sellers' performance as Dr. Strangelove, the Mm. wheelchair back professor whose body is inhabited half by nazis half by <laughs> actually a nazi scientist not unlike the ones that we were Invented talking about earlier about yeah. the area 51 thing um not the last time we'll talk about dr strangelove in this episode so he reasoned after this intense research that a folded up bug would have very awkward limb movements that scans. So he went out and bought two basketball knee braces that locked off his knees and ankles so that they couldn't move up or down or to the side. So for the first week or so of shooting, he had these basketball knee braces under his costume to kind of give him those herky-jerky movements. Oh, it's so upsetting. I love yes. it. Just and this brings us around. to the sugar water scene. Mm. Yeah, Son and Phil said, we did seven or eight different takes from several angles, and in each one of those, he downed an entire glass of sugar water, because there's a wide shot, so you see him drink the entire glass. There's no cutaway. <laughs> there wasn't an opportunity for him to stop. By the end of the night, he had such a sugar rush, because he'd drunk 11 or 12 glasses of sugar water. He was a real trooper. <laughs> yeah, that's that's insane. I'm sort of shocked that there wasn't an easier way to do that or to make it so they didn't have to drink actual sugar i don't i mean this 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 got me thinking basically about how much sugar could potentially kill a person go on so i turned to an article in the la times with the truly tremendous headline can too much halloween candy kill you which (laughs) i take offense to according to the american chemical society in order to give yourself a 50 50 chance of consuming a lethal amount of sugar you need to ingest 13.5 grams of sugar for every pound of your body weight. So the average American man weighs around 195 pounds. At that weight, he would need to have eat or drank 2,640 grams of sugar to have equal odds of living or dying. To roll the dice there. That translates to 155 fun-sized Snicker bars. 102 fun-sized packages of plain M&Ms, or, more appropriately for our purposes, 11 cups of sugar. So he must have gotten within a coin toss of death. Of, of living or dying. Yes, scene. exactly. That's my point. Um, makeup artist uh, David Leroy Anderson recalled that because he had to do this six hours of makeup, he was on set at, like, you know, whatever, two or three in the morning. Um, and So, so that- he needed the pick-me-up. <laughs> he said, about the time the sun was coming up, we'd step out of the trailer for a cigarette... And Edgar, Vincent, is in full character and people are walking around the streets of the meatpacking district bumming cigarettes from him and not even looking twice at the fact he's got nails growing out of his knuckles. His whole face is all f***ed 
fucked up. He's got big bald spots. Didn't matter at all. Which New York just City. proves Sonnenfeld's point. Yes. If aliens were here, New York would be the perfect place for them to be because no one would even look twice. Love it. Incredible. Speaking of famous people as aliens in this movie, in addition to the many celebrity cameos that we'll talk about later, the spiny-headed alien with its parent, that's Vern Troyer, mini-me from Austin Powers. Uh-huh. Did you know that? Hmm. I did not. Uh, we cannot forget Frank the Pug, the mm. Ramulian alien disguised as a dog. He was played by a professional pooch named Mushu, who was given the star treatment. His owner gave an interview to the National Enquirer for some reason in 2002. He said he travels by crate in business class. <laughs> uh Goes under the seat. The trainer stays in the hotel room with this dog, sleeps on her bed, orders meals from room service, steak and chicken. He drinks only bottled water when he's on the road. <laughs> he's a VIP. Hollywood. Uh, Frank the Pug is voiced by a guy named Tim Blarney, who also provided the voice for robot Johnny Five from one of my hmm. favorite movies as a kid, Short Circuit. Love Short Circuit. We should do Short Circuit. I've never seen it. I'd have to. I'd have what? to watch it. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if you'd love it. I loved it. <laughs> a robot, Filming. A, a, a military defense robot, gets struck by lightning and gains sentience and doesn't want to be a robotic soldier Alive. anymore. <laughs> like the robot they made self-aware and then drowned itself. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Open a limited time 11 month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or Kemba.org slash CV for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. One of the famous New York City landmarks in the film gave them a particular headache. The scene in which Will Smith chases the alien. Um, <laughs> I think he also ad-libbed the line, just be brain in black men in New York today. Yep. That was supposed to be shot at Lincoln Center, but the New York Philharmonic suddenly decided to charge them for that. So Sonnenfeld uh, switched it over to the Guggenheim. <laughs> Clearly ticket sales for Madame Bovary that year weren't great. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> Face. Philhar, New York Philharmonic. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> Production designer Bo Welch said on the Men in Black uh, headquarters, it was totally constructed on a soundstage at Sony. It happens to be tremendously long. His reasoning was the Men in Black had money because in the policing aliens, they stumbled across inventions like Velcro. Uh, and subsequently, they were able to afford this 60s looking airport terminal. He said he was specifically fascinated with the incredible, very famous TWA terminal at Kennedy Airport in Queens, which looks like a, I forget if it was supposed to look like a bird, and that was the whole idea, to kind of mimic the whole flight of a bird, but it's this mm. very weird looking uh, piece, of, incredible piece of architecture, which is featured in movies like Catch Me If You Can, and it's now a hotel. Mm. The way New York City has been trending, we're lucky it's not like a, a Starbucks. Um, for the aforementioned Will Smith farting scene... In the Queen's Tunnel, they built a 96-foot replica of the Midtown Tunnel, which is one-eighth the size of the real one. It was ludicrously accurate, right down to the graffiti, and it took them four months to build that thing. Um, there's a bunch of neat space stuff in here. The sphere, when he's, he's, you know, Will Smith is first in the Men in Black headquarters, and he picks up the, the, like the murderous bouncy ball thing that ping-pongs all around the HQ. Great Rip Torn! said to be a, a, a practical joke from The Great Attractor. I always thought that was just a tossed-off line. The Great Attractor is a real thing. It is a gravitational anomaly about 250 million light-years from Earth that is so strong it affects the motion of every galaxy within hundreds of millions of light-years. Including ours? Oh. Presumably. Oh, well, yeah, I guess so. Uh, first detected by astronomers in 1973. Um, there's a website called Bad Astronomy that was sort of a before Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter was like their whole thing was just shitting on movies for inaccurate astronomy stuff but they actually praised Men in Black for its accuracy and there's a joke in there too that this great attractor was what actually caused the 1977 blackout in New York City oh yeah uh, speaking of insane technical devices within this movie the Neuralizer which erases memories apparently the prop couldn't open and flash at the same time <laughs> <laughs> which created lots of headaches for the production team. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, this, it's just the sound of a strobe flash reloading, which I think is just funny. They were like, eh, just make it sound like a camera. Um, as is now famous, the American Humane Society monitored every aspect of this, especially the cockroaches. They're also famous for doing this on Joe's apartment. Um, Whoa, yeah. I think every time I read about a movie that has bugs in it, they talk about the Humane Society shows up and literally counts the roaches at the end of the day to make sure that none of them have, are famous. So in that scene where Will's pissing off Edgar by like squishing, oh, I'm sorry, was that your auntie? Crunch. Those were condiment packets, like mustard. Um, I guess the costume designer, Mary E. Voigt, Voigt heard that, maybe, I don't know if she heard or whatever, but she consciously wanted to avoid the um, Blues Brothers, the kind of baggier cut of suit um so she tailored all the suits in the film to be these more slim cut uh 1960s silhouettes carrie grants in north by northwest is a big inspiration will smith said the last time i wore a suit was my eighth grade graduation uh the sunglasses used in men in black are ray-ban predator 2 glasses uh supposedly at will smith's request i guess he really liked them and after the film's release ray-ban reported that sales of these glasses tripled from 1.6 million annually to five million. Um, and I guess there was some minor drama about this. There was a special coating applied to the lenses to reduce glare and limit the reflection from all the lights on the set. But this removed the logo that's famously on all the Ray-Ban lenses. And Ray-Ban tried to convince the studio to reinstate the logo, but they refused. And after some coercing, I guess Will Smith compromised and name-dropped the brand 
in the Men in Black theme song, Black Tie with the Black Attitude, New Style, Black Ray-Bans, I'm Stunned Man. I, gotta, <laughs> I want you to read more rap out. lyrics. I want you to read rap lyrics in a dead monotone for the rest of my life. Um, the watch worn by Agent J in these movies is a Hamilton Ventura, which is a style made famous by Elvis Presley in the movie Blue Hawaii. And I think they just did a reissue of it earlier this year. It's really cool. It's like this weird triangular shape, very, uh, you know, mid-century futuristic watch. How much does it cost? The cheapest one I saw was like 800 I know, I want it so bad. Uh, Becoming a watch guy would be so bad. Uh, I covet it. I know, me um, too. But man, for all of this care and thought that they put into it, they were really scrambling at different parts of this. There were a bunch of changes that they made to the plot. Uh, well, I guess there were two changes that they made to the plot. But costly and big ones. <laughs> yes, huge ones. Uh, five months into production, the original ending to the film was scrapped. They were originally going to have this kind of comedic, philosophical, existential debate between Will Smith and uh, Edgar, which, thank God they changed that. And they decided to- British. Yeah, it's yeah, Douglas Adams again. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, and this, so they decided to rework it into the action scene. This directly affected Rick Baker, who at the cost of $1 million had built a almost 20 foot tall animatronic cockroach. And they were like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> so to do all the CGI that's in there, extra 4.5 mil to the budget, uh, they send it over to Industrial Light and Magic, again, with like two weeks left in shooting for this. Uh, another post-production change was they decided the whole plot about the smuggled alien galaxy was getting very complicated because as part of the lore and backstory to that, there was another alien race in there called the Baltians. Um, I don't even understand it, what I was reading about that. It got very confusing to me. So they wisely thought this cluttered this up. So in post-production, they changed some of the readouts in the Men in Black computers. They changed some of the subtitles and the diner scenes, all very crafty ways of doing this. And then they just redubbed some of Frank's dialogue because like, obviously you don't need to reshoot a dog to get the dialogue <laughs> to line up. Um, and they cut all of the mentions of that race uh, with, um, again, like two weeks left in post. Um, and in, so some of the bonus making of material for the home releases that Sonnenfeld jokingly advised all directors to put talking dogs in their films as an easy, <laughs> I guess, sort of escape hatch for correcting plot points later. Just have a talking <laughs> dog do all the exposition so you can change it on the fly. I love that. Um, there are other winks to famous alien sci-fi stuff in the film. Um, the driver smuggling the illegal aliens in the opening scene is driving along a road marked 375, and he claims to have been fishing in Cuernavaca. Uh, 375 is Nevada State Road, also known as the Extraterrestrial Highway because it goes near Area 51, a road you have driven. I have driven there, yep. Uh, and Cuernavaca is the Mexican city in which British UFO olive... UFO olive... That's, that's an impossible word to say. I'm going to do it in the Edgar voice. A Cuernavaca is a Mexican city in which British UFOologist. A Cuernavaca is the Mexican city in which British UFOologist Gordon Creighton claimed a flying saucer crashed near in 1951. The um, explanation that Tommy Jones gives Edgar's wife sort of throws four of the most infamous explanations for UFO sightings into a blender. Uh, those include swamp gas, which was uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek's explanation of a Michigan sighting, weather balloon, which is the original explanation for the Roswell incident, a thermal pocket, which is uh, a Washington, D.C. UFO sighting in 1952, and light from Venus, 
which is one of the most famously used explanations for UFOs. Uh, we mentioned Douglas Adams earlier. There are nods to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The question about cab drivers being aliens could be seen as a reference to a line in So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, in which the guide suggests that driving a cab is a good way to make a living for aliens visiting New York City. And the whole... That beautiful ending shot, just such a tremendous concept where they zoom out of our galaxy and the universe and go even further than that. It's revealed to be a set of marbles that aliens are playing with. That could also be a reference to a line in the book where uh, Ford Prefect tells Arthur Dent that he knew of a planet that got used in a game of intergalactic bar billiards and was (laughs) potted into a black pole. And he just says, only scored 30 points, too. (laughs) I love Hitchhiker's Guide. So good. I read a theory, I don't know how realistic this is, that that end shot of pulling out was sort of a nod to the finale of the TV show St. Elsewhere, where the kid's staring oh, at the, the snow, snow globe. globe. Yeah, yeah. And he's, been, he's imagined it all. The whole series was just in this kid's mind as he's staring into the snow globe. Um, I don't know. I think that could be... Uh, is that like a famously hated conclusion? Yes, very much so. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it's basically like a giant... It's like those jokes that don't have a punchline and just go on and on and on and on and on. I think that's how people like kind of like, wait, that was just a giant waste of of time. That there was... The, yeah. Interestingly, in 1997, the same year this came out, uh, Contact also came out. And that opens with right. a similar shot where... They start with something being broadcast on Earth, and they go out and out and out and out and out into space, past the Van Allen belt, past all the planets, out of the galaxy, and then it ends in uh, young, whatever Jodie Foster's character's name is, uh, Arroway. Oh, Somebody yeah. Somebody Arroway. Uh, her eye, her iris. Um, right, 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 right. Which is really I, cool. I used to so watch that for the first time last year. Oh, that was your first time? What'd you think? Yeah. So good. Just oh, so it's good. it's incredible. No words. Should have sent a poet. <laughs> oh, yes. It was yeah. a great oral history, I think, on Vulture that just came out like earlier this week. Um, oh, sh- such a good movie. Yeah. The book is amazing. That's Sagan, Sagan, right? Sagan book. Yeah. 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 It's so good. It's beautiful. Um, moving from the end credits to the opening credits, the font in the opening credits was designed by a guy named Pablo Ferro. And they're very distinctive looking, kind of wonky handwritten yeah um they're a nod to the work that he did in stanley kubrick's classic apocalyptic comedy dr strangelove or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb um which i think you know in addition to just being a stylistic choice probably was done to kind of telegraph like this movie will be equally sort of off-kilter government absurdist so uh danny elfman did the score for this truly um I've kind of soured on Danny Elfman. I, I get too much for his, you. Yeah, his whole like carnival ride. But he made the score to Batman. So, you know, he's forever grandfathered into being the for that. Uh, nominated for an Oscar for the score, which, um, sure. Uh, <laughs> and then his anecdote about getting this is so funny. Actually, he was talking to People TV about it. Elfman was on the set of, uh, I think what is a great movie, sort of a misbegotten one, The Frighteners, starring Michael J. Fox, directed by Peter Jackson. Nope. Um, and they, I guess they were shooting next to each other. And so Vincent D'Onofrio invites him over to the Men in Black set. He's like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. I'm playing this gross monster. Like, come over <laughs> and check it out. And uh, on Danny Elfman's way back home, his agent calls him and was like, they want you to do the score for a movie called Men in Black? Like, what did you say? And he just goes, I don't know. 
<laughs> so, so somehow he, the presence of Danny Elfman was enough to convince Vincent D'Onofrio to lobby for him to do the score for this movie. Uh, Sonnenfeld has a medium funny anecdote about uh, working on it uh, with Elfman. They gave him some scenes to write for and he goes out to check his progress and uh, quote, he had a place in Malibu that was so dark and so scary. I go into this bunker that he had on his Malibu property. It's pitch black. He's got skeletons, taxidermy. I'm pretty freaked out. And the initial stuff Danny played for me was totally wrong. So not only is he in this bizarre, pitch black, Tim Burton-esque world, he has to tell Danny, like, no, that's not what we want. Um, But he did say, a a week later, I drove back to that horrible place of his again (laughs) and loved what he had done since. Unfortunately, all anyone (laughs) remembers from this film is that f***ing Will Smith song. I hate Will Smith's run in the 90s the laziest f***ing samples since that Puff Daddy thing. He literally just steals. Like, there's nothing clever about, oh, I took a break from this, and I took a bass line from that, and I took a piano or vocal hook from this, I chopped them up. Nope. He just takes songs and rewrites them. Uh, the Men in Black one is Forget Me Nots by Patrice Russian. Will 2K or Millennium or whatever that piece of it is is, called, is just the Rock the Casbah. Just f***ing stole Rock the Casbah. The Wild Wild West one, uh, Wiki Wiki Wild Wild West, is a Stevie Wonder song. Uh, I f***ing hate all of them. Um, they didn't even ask him to do the song until they were in post-production, which may account for why it's so f***ing half-assed. And then in the video, they even ripped, they steal the electric slide. They couldn't be arsed to come up with a f***ing original dance for this. But what do I know? Because it topped the charts in Australia, Belgium, France, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, New Zealand, Switzerland, and the UK, but not the US, because it was not released as a commercial single. He won a Best Rap Performance Grammy for this. Oh, as if that means anything. Well, yeah, but still. Um... I think this theme was Will's first solo song without DJ Jazzy Jeff. Aw. Hmm. Poor Jazzy Jeff was robbed of a Grammy. <laughs> I don't know. I will always have a soft spot for Will Smith's rapping because of the line and freaking it. I read in the rap pages, they refer to me as soft. Yeah, more like Microsoft. Microsoft. Will Gates of the rap game. In Malibu, and he That's talks so about smoke. I just, in Malibu, when he's, he's like, sick of sick of Cuban cigar, I don't light it. It's just for the look. Like, you're such a f***ing nerd. And I would just forever remember the, I, you know, Eminem is not aged well, but Will Smith don't have to curse in his rap to sell records. Well, I do. So f*** him and f*** you too. <laughs> uh, just one of the great all-time rap disses. Uh, the music video for the Men in Black theme was one of the highest budgeted in history at the time it cost around a million dollars and much of this budget went towards executing will's idea that he danced with an animated alien creature uh mikey from the film's opening scene he wanted to have that character dance in the video alongside of him and so they employed a really early form of motion capture technology to pull this off the post-production process took three weeks and ultimately gave him an alien dance partner which looks medium convincing for the time this thing went triple platinum yep and has very early pre-fame songs from alicia keys and destiny's child just fun i think it was one of the first destiny's child songs that came out with when there were four of them yeah yeah you know it's funny that the production uh pissed off ray-ban earlier because there were over 30 promotional tie-ins marketing tie-ins for this film uh which is ray-ban as we mentioned hamilton watch watches and my favorite one head and shoulders 
who didn't tie in with the line, keeping the men in black in black. Uh, for, for any of you who don't know, Head & Shoulders is the famous anti-dandruff shampoo. Um, oh, that's good. I didn't get it. Okay. Yeah, because they yeah, would be brushing the dandruff yes, flakes yes, yes. off their black suits. Yeah, it's very, yeah. Oh, that's ad, actually, I like Some that. ad that's guy okay. made triple all of our yeah. salaries for that. <laughs> Sonnenfeld told Insider this year that we had a family and friends screening near the end of editing where we didn't have the VFX in, which is fairly common, and it was a disaster. <laughs> After the movie was released, people who were at the screening Quote, my agent, my lawyer, Ethan Cohen, after the movie was released and was a hit, they all said, we lied to you when we said it was going to be good after the friends and family showing. We didn't think it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love hearing that after the fact. We thought that sucked. Uh, The film comes out, breaks a bunch of financial records, uh, but none that really stuck around. They're all subsequently broken pretty quickly. But it is interesting to me to note that this film was knocked out of its number one slot at the box office by your beloved large plane movie, Air Force One. Um, And Baker's work justifiably won the Academy Award for Best Makeup. Holy he's got seven Academy Awards. Wow. All right. Well, it shows what I know. Uh, the film supposedly grossed $589 million worldwide off a reported $90 million budget. But as recently as 2020, Ed Solomon claimed that the film was somehow still in the red. A few other filmmakers chimed in about this on Twitter, leading to a fun thread about Hollywood bookkeeping. Um, apparently, one of the examples of which and what's Solomon is talking about is that they officially claim a film has never made a profit. They say it's always just in the red to keep anyone from having a cut of the gross rather than the net. So if you negotiate for a gross or a percentage point of the film's gross, the studio will forever claim that the movie has not actually turned a profit to keep you from making any money for it. But how uh, can they claim that when we can Google the fact that it made, you know, over half a billion dollars? I, I don't know, man. Um, famous one of this is David, well, a, one of the many famous ones of this, David Prowse, who is the actor inside the Darth Vader suit for the original Star Wars trilogy. He said he never received residuals from Return of the Jedi. Um, as Lucasfilm uh, claimed it never made a profit despite making $572 million worldwide. Truly the greatest industry. Wow. Well, in real honest math, uh, (laughs) Men in Black was the second highest grossing movie of 1997 after my beloved Titanic. Um, Titanic came out in December too. I should probably double check that because that, well, although I could see it making half a billion dollars in one month. So maybe that's accurate. Um, it's supposed to be the highest grossing action buddy comedy of all time in the United States, which is a pretty niche category, but trailed closely by Rush Hour 2. And I just thought this was really funny. During the film's theatrical run, there was, I guess, a lab error that caused problems for the film prints. Oh, And these no. film prints were sent out to movie theaters, and they weren't formatted correctly for widescreen. Oh, no. So if the projectionist didn't frame it cr- correctly the audience would be able to see things ah. that it was not supposed to see, like boom mics and lens shades oh, and other no. technical gear. wasn't a huge, huge phenomenon, but it happened enough. Oh, man, I love that. Despite all the millions of the millions and millions of dollars in, the, in Hollywood, this like that happens. Like, do you remember when they put out The Mummy, that scene from The Mummy trailer without any no. of the music? Oh, this is Wait, so famous. No, I've never heard Oh, this. you got to Google this. This is so funny. They put out the, I think it was an early trailer, early teaser for the Tom Cruise uh, mummy. 
which a film that so famously bad and flopped that it scuttled Universal's plans for an entire rebooted, quote, dark universe where they were going to take all their old Universal Monsters properties and make them like an MCU style overlapping world and the Which mummy could have worked yeah i mean in theory but but all the promotional materials are still up and out there like there's a tweet that says announcing the start of a new dark universe and has all of the actors in it together um and the mummy flopped so hard that they scuttled it and have never spoken of it since anyway they release a teaser trailer for mummy that has tom cruise bouncing around the inside of an airplane in free fall but there's no music in it so it's just you just hear <laughs> tom cruise boom, boom. Ah! it's just air oh it's so good uh men in black is currently sitting at a 92 percent critical 79 percent audience rating at rotten tomatoes getting back to what we said at the top of the episode usa today described men in black as quote independence day for smart people which is pretty much your your take on it i didn't read that till the end oh man i am prescient or at the very least, share a sensibility with USA Today. Uh, we're not going to talk about the sequels at all, uh, as we mentioned earlier, except for one last bit. Um, at the end of the first film, Agent J reveals to Agent L, Linda Fiorentino, that Dennis Rodman is an alien. Easy joke to make. This reference was changed to Michael Jackson for the European dubbings of the film because Dennis Rodman was not widely known in Europe. So that joke would have gone over their heads. Great but North oddly Korea. enough, Michael Jackson does make a cameo appearance in Men in Black 2. And Sonnenfeld said that he actually approached them because he loved the first movie. And they wanted to make him an alien, but he said, no, I want to wear the Men in Black suit. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we've, this is like, I, I think the 40th episode we've taped, and I don't think I've heard your, your Michael Jackson uh, voice yet. It's wow. all stolen from, it's all stolen from the South one Park. VH, well, that and the one VH1 oh. thing where Paul McCartney starts talking about, uh, oh, I'm going to get your songs. I'm going to buy your it. songs, Paul. Yeah. It's so cruel, and it's just the basis for my entire. And Paul McCartney, uh, who's never been publicly cruel ever. Yeah. Well, it's a sore point for him. Um... Run us down, Jordan, the cameos that are in this film. Uh, yes, a bunch of celebrities make cameos uh, as aliens on a TV monitor. There's Danny DeVito, Al Roker, Sylvester Stallone, Dionne Warwick, Anthony hmm. Robbins, Newt Gingrich. Yeah, that's scans. Barry Sonnenfeld, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. And I think that they were actually like, I don't think it was like footage from them. On IMDb, it says that they have an uncredited role. So I assume they like, you know showed up and did something for this well i think some of them are in the background but i think they might be in some of the monitor like scans yeah but yeah i don't think that was like previously filmed footage i think it was done yeah. specifically for this at least that's what imdb says uh there are also tentative plans to do i know you said we weren't going to talk about any sequels but this was just so weird to me there were also tentative plans to do a 21 jump street men in black crossover movie with jonah hill and channing tatum uh it was actually announced at the 2016 comic-con in las vegas but it seems like that idea is still in development hell, where it is likely to stay. The Hemsworth one flopped pretty bad, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the film Men in Black has an even bigger cinematic influence. After the massive success of Men in Black, Marvel, who owned the Men in Black comic, began to shop their stories to other studios more actively, and this led to the X-Men films from Fox and the Spider-Man films from Sony. So, in a way... Men in Black paved the way for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's this in Blade. Yeah. Which is incredible. I love it so much that, um, you know, these two niche comic book properties that both happen to star, like, 
you know, black men, which was now such a rarity in these all these whitewashed comic films, launched the f***ing MCU, man. It's uh, that's so cool for me. Gotta love Blade. I don't know what else I have to say about Men in Black, man. Such a perfect little gem of a niche film. Um, can't hold the sins of the sequels really against it. Um, I urge everyone to go and watch it. Perfect little summer film. Just sit down and uh, take in the wonders of the universe and Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith's farts. <laughs> For you, I shall. After you sat through American <laughs> Pie and Margaritaville back to back, I will do this. Well, folks, thank you for listening. We will see you next time on Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. I'm Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.